Good evening. You can open with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, in chapter 12, actually, where we left off last week. And as you're turning there, I want to recap where we are in the account and, and, and remind you that this is poetry, so there'll be quite a bit of reading and then some commentary on the reading, and we'll deal with some of the principles that are addressed. Uh, a lot of this is not so much word for word or even verse for verse. It's, it's thought to thought. So we'll look at the different thoughts that are expressed, and uh, some of them are the perception of a man who is suffering. Some of them are the thoughts of individuals who are trying to explain the suffering. Uh, this evening, actually, we're not going to look at any of the comments from Job's friends, because Job is going to close out what we call the first cycle of debate. So there's been this cycle of debate that has gone through each of the three friends. Job will complain, then Eliphaz said something uh, to try to remedy his suffering, and then he responded. And then Bildad said something to address Job's complaints, and then Job responded. And then Zophar had something to say as Job complained, and then uh, Job responded to Zophar. So we saw all of that over the last... Um, actually, Job hasn't actually responded to Zophar just yet. He, Zophar spoke in chapter 11. We're going to see his response. And actually, when he responds in chapter 12, he responds not just to Zophar, but to all three of his friends and the entire first cycle of debate. And then he's going to appeal to God. And then in next Wednesday, we'll come together and begin the second cycle of debate. So if you didn't have enough complaining and enough of the poetry that can be rather verbose at times, uh, you've got two more cycles of debate. They, they get a little bit more brief as time goes on. They address a similar subject each time, but in a different way. And remember that the repetition, or actually I should say reiteration, is in fact the style of poetry in Hebrew poetry. Then you'll understand why you have these repetitive cycles of debate. But I'll remind you where we left off last week in chapter 11. Zophar had attempted to remedy Job's suffering, and he was really harsh. He rebuked Job, and he refused to let anything that Job said go unanswered or unchallenged. And then he mocked Job's defense of his integrity, which is what Job is essentially defending, his integrity, that he hadn't done anything to deserve the suffering. And uh, he challenged this, so far he challenged Job's knowledge of spiritual things and insisted that he was guilty before God. And then finally he closes by offering, the, in the, offering him hope in the midst of his suffering, but basically hope only if he were to acknowledge his sin, that is, admit that his friends are right, confess his sin and repent, then he would be restored and everything would be just fine. Because after all, if you repent, you don't suffer. If you are in this mind of, the, of these individuals, and especially Zophar, and if you don't repent, you do suffer. Again, the problem being that they're wrong. Job has nothing to repent of, and he is suffering. And that is, of course, the entire debate throughout the book. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we're grateful that you give us understanding in suffering, for we desperately need it. And there are many suffering in today's world. And it's hard to witness suffering and be aware of it and not ask the question with Job, why do innocent people suffer? Why do little children suffer in the wars and the pestilences that are brought on by wicked men and women? Why does that happen? Why do the innocent suffer in a world like this? It's a question we all have, and it can stumble us in our faith if we give our hearts to it and our sentimentality and emotion to it and step away from your word and what we know to be true 
according to your word. So give us faith, give us understanding, give us the wisdom to be able to see things as they really are, according to your perspective. We ask your Holy Spirit to give us that wisdom and that vision, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by looking at the first three verses of chapter 12. And we'll go through it briefly. It says, Then Job replied, doubtless, speaking you know, to his friends here, challenging Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad, he says, Doubtless, you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. That's sarcasm. It's good to know that sarcasm is still alive and well, right? But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? So all the things that they were sharing was really common knowledge. And he's sort of dismissing their counsel as common knowledge. And more importantly, things that don't help at all because they don't really explain Job's particular situation. Before we go any further, there's one thing I want to say. A lot of times we're called to give biblical counsel. And it's different than advice. Biblical counsel is sharing the truth of God that an individual might apply God's truth to their circumstances. But notice it's that that person may apply God's truth to their circumstances. It's not so that you or I or we can apply God's truth to their circumstances. That would be crossing the line. What we're doing is sharing God's truth and then praying and hoping that the people that we share it with will be able to, as the Holy Spirit gives them the ability, apply that truth to their own lives. So it's not one size fits all. You know, I'm always a little cautious when I see something advertised, like let's say a hat or a t-shirt, and it says under size, one size fits all. Now something tells me, no offense, Jim, but a shirt that you might wear and that might fit you might not fit me and vice versa. So if one size fits all, what's going to happen? You know, it's going to be a, a tent on me and probably a little tight on Jim. The thing is, there is no one size fits all when it comes to biblical counsel. You and I, we can't just take a principle from God's word and say, well, all you need to do is this and everything will be just fine. And when pastors do that, we call that giving a pat answer. You know, it's a really dangerous practice because, you know, to be honest with you, short of sin, short of things that we're, we know to be obvious, like, oh, should I commit adultery or should I commit murder or should I steal Okay, you know, those, those aren't complicated issues to answer or respond to from God's word. Even then, you apply God's word. But if someone comes to you and they say, well, should I go on this missions trip? And there's, there's no, like, chapter and verse for that. You're going to have to pray your way through it and receive God's counsel. So the counsel of God in matters like that is no right or wrong in terms of just should I go or should I not go. It's really a question of whether or not God is calling you to go and who's the only person that could possibly determine that. And it isn't our missions pastor, Joe Nigro. It's you. You have to be the one to discern God's will in your own heart. So biblical counsel will give another person the ability to do that, but it doesn't just tell them what to do. It doesn't just describe their problem in detail and solve it. A dogmatist is a person who thinks that way. It's very simple. Just do exactly what it says here. So I want to say that one of the things Job understands is they're giving him answers. And in some cases, in certain people's lives, those answers may apply, but not in Job's. And so he defends his own integrity once again in verses 4 through 6. I have become a laughing stock to my friends, he says, though I called upon God and he answered, 
a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. So notice, he's, he's not going to back down on these issues. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure. Those who carry their God in their hands, so that would be idolaters. What he's saying is there are people that don't love God and don't serve God, and they're not suffering like I am. Men of obvious bad character were not suffering like Job was suffering. So their thinking, their rationale is incorrect. Because if Job had committed some sin and he was suffering for that sin, then how do you explain the sinners that have obviously sinned and aren't suffering? So it's obviously there's something wrong with their calculus, with their ability to reason here. His integrity, though intact, didn't prevent his current suffering. So why is that important? Because maybe you're suffering this evening, or you've been suffering, or you're, you're going through a time of suffering, and you're trying to figure out why. Well, one of the things you can rest assured is, is that it, it very well may not have anything to do with something you've done. It may not. Now, it may. I, I can't sit here and tell you it does or it doesn't, but I can tell you that it's at least possible that God is simply allowing suffering in your life for his purposes. All right? That's a very important principle we learn in the book of Job. Well, then, in verses 7 through 12 of, uh, of chapter 12, we read, Job writes, or Job, Job speaks, but ask the animals. Now, of course, you can't ask the animals unless you're Dr. Doolittle, right? You can't ask the animals, but remember, this is poetry. So he says, but ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living creature, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? And all these things are true. And he's looking now at the world of nature, the the natural kingdom, the animal kingdom, and wisdom, to be witnesses for his defense. So he's he's looking at life and the circumstances of life and saying, look, ask, ask any of God's creation. And of course, you can't actually physically ask the earth. But the point is, look at the earth, analyze it, ask the questions, and come to the conclusion that I've come to. That is, God's creation testifies that he's in control, that he's sovereign, and he allows this thing called undeserved suffering. Because the animals don't, quote-unquote, deserve suffering, right? I mean, they're not creatures of moral conscience. So when you're driving home and you see an animal on the side of the road, you feel badly, but to sit there and say, well, I guess that animal was, you know, sinning. I guess that animal must have sinned, and now it's roadkill. You know, it would be a ridiculous assumption. But that's how ridiculous it sounded to Job, that they would suggest that he was suffering for those reasons as well. His, His friends were very selective, by the way, in their choice of sayings and proverbs. People will do this if you've ever talked to someone who is very dogmatic, and they've decided in their heart what the answer is before they've listened. They'll pick just select scriptures or stories, or accounts, or sayings to support their foregone conclusion. And that's a dangerous practice. You know, you just take, there's like two portions of the scripture, and you only take the little piece that, that really fits your narrative, you know? And if it doesn't fit your narrative, well, you don't mention it. 
and you kind of isolate or pre-select the truth according to your own beliefs. And that's problematic, and that's what happens when we don't teach the whole counsel of God. Some people might say, well, Pastor Tim, why are you even teaching through the book of Job? Nobody wants to study that book. You know, I would hope that's not true, but you have to stick to John, Gospel of John and First John, and maybe the book of Revelation and occasionally some of the epistles, but what are you doing teaching the book of Job? Well, the, the whole counsel of God gives us the whole counsel of God. If you just approach it like, well, I just want to read the good stuff. It's kind of like when dinner comes along only having dessert. You know, where's the meat? Where's the potatoes? Where's the substance of God's word that's going to help you to survive in this fallen world? Where is that? Oh, well, we put it aside because it's too challenging. It's too hard to chew. We don't have to use a steak knife. We don't have to chomp. We just want to sort of blend everything together and and digest God's word in a very easy way. I've heard people say that they don't like to eat. Never understood that. can honestly tell you it's one of the great pleasures of life for me as an Italian-American especially to eat. I love to eat. And I've heard people say, oh, I don't enjoy eating. If I could take a pill and I didn't have to eat, I would do that. Complete insanity where I come from. But there are some people that would just prefer to, like, take a pill. There's some people that would just like to take the truth that will get them through and help them to keep their reasoning intact. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want anyone to suggest the way that they think is right or wrong. They don't even want to talk about it. They want to stay comfortable in their lethargy, and they don't want to be challenged at all. Don't read the book of Job, (laughs) because the book of Job's purpose is challenging us in the way we think. So Job is being challenged, and God will challenge him and his counselors. But his friends, I like the way it says it here in verse 11, does not the ear test words the way the tongue tastes food? Now what that means is, if you're at a party, and they have a dish out, and they have all these different appetizers, you might do like I do. You take a little one, and you say, hmm, let me taste and you taste, and it's liver pate. And you very politely find the garbage and throw the rest of it out, because I hate liver. Ever since I was a kid, I've hated liver. So, all, all organ meat really doesn't appeal to me, but, but liver especially. Okay, you taste to see if you like it. Well, the ear tests words in the same way. And when the ear finds words it doesn't like, it can go to the garbage and sort of get rid of it. It doesn't want that ugh, liver. Ugh. And that's what they're doing with their ears. They're testing words, and where the words don't line up with their rationale, they're discarding them. That is a very dangerous way to think. Because what it basically means is anything that doesn't fit your narrative, whether it's on the left or the right, your narrative is discarded. It's not even considered. And when you do that, you lose all rational debate. And that's where we are in our society today, basically. We have large numbers of people that just don't even want to talk about anything other than what they believe. They're right. Everyone else is a white supremacist. You know, they're right, and anyone who's wrong is Adolf Hitler. That's where we are in today's world, which is sad. Job was dealing with a group of men who had already decided what happened and wouldn't even consider some of the things that Job is saying, equally true from God's word, to consider it, they won't even open their their ears because they've tasted it and they don't like it. They've thrown it out. Okay, so that's, that's a lot of poetry in just a little verse, but it's powerful. So I share that with you, and I also want to say that wisdom and understanding 
only proved Job's case to be true, so they had to discard the wisdom and the understanding that he was sharing. Okay? Now, he goes on to testify to God's sovereignty in all things. And some of these things are really wonderful to consider in the midst of Job's suffering. For example, in verse 13, where we left off, To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped and overflows men, excuse me, overthrows men, long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He makes the nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth, uh, excuse me, he deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through the trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light and he makes them stagger like drunkards. Wow, that's a very dramatic and elaborate thing to say. A lot of verses there. What is he really saying? Simply this. In a beautiful way, he's saying God is sovereign in all things. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign in the affairs of mankind, and he allows suffering. So not much to say, except that it's very poetic in the way that he said it. Then he rebukes them. He rebukes these counselors for their many foolish words. We've gotten a taste of their foolishness in the first cycle of debate. We'll get a second cycle of debate, a third cycle of debate, and then uh, we'll move on in this book. But it's important to note that he rebukes them. Look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 13. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know, but I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show impartiality? Will you argue the case for God? Or will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. It's all garbage, basically, is what he's saying. Everything you're saying, it's all bunk. It doesn't... doesn't hold any water. You're all a bunch of fools. You'd be wise if you at least kept your mouth shut. I have to agree with them, basically. I have to agree. I think when they sat with Job for those seven days and didn't say anything, that was the most wisdom they showed in this entire conversation. But here you have it. He's rejecting the wisdom and the counsel of his companions, refuses to buckle, and he challenges them to reconsider their counsel. Think again. Think again. And of course they won't, but 
He's challenging them to do so. And what he wants now, and this is so important, he just wants them to be quiet and stop it. All right? Because he says in verses 13 through 19, Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, speaking of God, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. So now he's gone on the attack. I mean, he's essentially not only defending himself and pushing back, but he's essentially saying, listen, if you can point out what it is that you think I've done, go ahead and I'll be quiet. But otherwise, you be quiet. And that's where he's at. And I don't blame him for being there. He's seeking silence from his companions. And listen, this basically comes down to this. A righteous man or woman has nothing to fear from God. A righteous man or woman has nothing to fear from God. Now, we're righteous in Christ. Therefore, we need not fear anything about God. Now, we can respect God and fear and reverence him and worship, but we shouldn't be worried We shouldn't be overly concerned or anxious if our lives are right before God. I didn't say perfect, but right. Your life is in Christ. You're made righteous in his presence by his grace and mercy. You can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in your time of need, the book of Hebrews tells us. So we don't live in cowering fear of approaching God. We love God. We know God. We serve God. We've been made righteous by Christ. But we come boldly before God because of what he's done for us. So that's really part of the message here. He feels comfortable defending himself in that way because he knows who God is and he knows himself. And God is clearly in control of all things. And so he confidently challenges them to prove all their accusations. And he leaves off at that point. Essentially, that is his response to the entire first cycle of debate up to that verse. That's what he has to say to all the words that Zophar, Eliphaz, and Bildad had to share with him. But then, he now begins to do what's more important than responding to those who would come against you. He begins to appeal to God. And inevitably, Job does this. He's attacked, he responds, but then he appeals to God, or complains to God, or cries out to God. But he goes to God because his heart is for God. He's a man after God's own heart. He really is. And he appeals to God when he says this in verses 20 through 27. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply, how many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Describes himself in that way. Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles and you keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. 
Now, this is a man crying out to God, not irreverently, but making it clear, if there's something he's done wrong, God, show me what it is, because I surely have no clue. The sad thing is he hadn't done anything wrong. And that's why he's having a hard time searching his own heart to figure out what it could possibly be. And his friends are no help at all. Now, one of the things he said in the previous section, and I love this, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, or that I will trust in him. Though he slay me. Can you really say that? Because Job couldn't, and, and essentially he lived it, right? He'd taken his family, he'd taken his possessions, God had taken his health, and still he stands there with his integrity intact and says, though he slay me. Now, even if he kills me, I'm still going to put my hope in God. Now, that's, just, that's basically to say, even if God lets me suffer, which he has, even if I lose all my possessions, which he had, even if I lose my family members and my health, and he even takes my life, still I will hope in him. And you can see why God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Because despite all of this, all of this story and all the trials and all the challenges, this man never lost his integrity, never, never cursed God, never lost his faith. It was challenging. At times he lost hope of this earthly life, which many times we can, but he never lost or, or, or abandoned his hope in God. I just want to stop for a moment and suggest that there are probably people here who've had their moments. And we probably know people who've reached a point because of the suffering and the circumstances of their life and said, I'm done with God. I'm not going to put my trust in God anymore. I doubt that those individuals or anyone here has suffered to this extent. How about Christ on the cross? I mean, he knew why he was suffering. He suffered on our behalf. But as a man, he was forsaken by his father, as a man. That is, he was handed over to suffer, to die. And at no point did Jesus ever lose hope in his father. And at no point did Job lose hope in his father. So why on earth would anyone in this world who's suffering, no matter how horrific their suffering is, lose hope in God, when after all, he's the only hope we have? Amen? That's the subtle message here. But back to what we just read. I love this. He's pleading for God to give him understanding in his suffering. He just wants to know why. He's okay with it. If God sort of explains it to him, he can bear up under it. It's not knowing that's so difficult. But let's be honest. God doesn't always explain to us what we're going through and why. And it takes faith to believe and trust in God when you don't have understanding and wisdom. So he asked God for a reprieve from his physical and psychological torture. He asked God for an audience in his presence. And he asked God for spiritual understanding as to why he was suffering. Those are legitimate requests. But I'm just going to tell you right now, we'll get through the entire study in the book. And and that's not going to happen. At no point, other than what we know from this book, at no point do we ever really get to an understanding as to why Job suffered. Job doesn't find out, his friends don't find out, and we don't really find out either. That's the point. That's the point. You know, I've watched movies where you watch for like two hours and you're trying to figure out what's going on, right? You're watching the movie, you go through, you're like, oh, you're looking at the clock. I I check the timing on how much time is left on the movie that I'm streaming. I'm like, okay, eight more minutes and I'll know what happened here. Have you ever gotten to the end of a movie and the screen goes blank and you know 
as much as you did at the beginning of the movie about what just happened. And then you think to yourself, what kind of a garbage movie was that? I'd love to get those two hours back. It's not like that with the book of Job, because it actually increases our faith to know that we're not the only ones on this planet who go through difficulty and trial, only to come to the conclusion we have no idea why. That's actually a great comfort, because seldom do people know the answer to all of their problems, but they know his name. It's Jesus, and he's the answer in each of our problems, though we may not always understand why. We know who. Amen? And that's really the message. Okay, so where do we leave off here? We're going to pick it up in verse 28 of chapter 13. And here, Job is overcome by this thought. And anyone here who's close to my age or older has had this thought, I'm sure. The brevity of life. Remember when you were like, someone in their 50s here, remember when you were 12? You can still remember when you were 12, I hope. Like you think back. It felt like yesterday. It, it, and now all of a sudden, here you are, and you don't like to think of yourself as old, but you're not 12 anymore. And you watch a little 12-year-old run in the park, and, and maybe if you keep in good shape, you can follow after them, but you might be tired at the end of the day. Life is brief. And it seems a shame that people sacrifice eternity for some degree of pleasure in this very brief existence, but life is brief, and I'm not trying to depress anyone, and Job isn't either. He just makes a comment here. In verse 28 of chapter 13, he says, So man wastes away like something rotten, like that piece of fruit that made its way to the back of your fridge like a week ago. You went to Trader Joe's, you bought six of those pieces of fruit, and you ate five, and you forgot about the other one, and you look in the back, and something has gone terribly wrong in the refrigerator. It's an alien of sorts. It's just something. What is that? Well, so man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Generally, we don't have that problem anymore, but back then, uh, moths could get into the clothing of individuals. They'd make their way into the house, and they would literally eat away, and this can happen. That's why they have mothballs, I guess. Um, it literally could happen to your clothing where it gets eaten, moth-eaten, if you will. And that's how he describes a man's life. Then he goes on to say, Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Do you fix your eye on such a one, he says to God? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? That is, your parents were impure. So what do you think you are going to be? Kids always think they're better than their parents. If anything, if you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, the copy isn't as good as the original. Just, just saying. Can you bring what is pure from what is impure? Who can do it? No one, he goes on to say. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. It's like you punch out at the end of the week. And it's, it's interesting, almost comical, somewhat sarcastic, but comical language. It really defines our existence. Life is short. Life is brief. And he makes that point in a poetic way. Again, imperfect parents will have similarly imperfect children. So don't expect to exceed the spirituality of 
you know, your parents were born to trouble, Job would say. And he says this, God has determined our lifespan by his infinite knowledge. He knows exactly how long we're going to be on this planet, when we're going to die, when we're going to be ushered into his presence as his children. You know, I've shared this before. I, uh, I really enjoy Greek mythology. I, I love it. I, I watched a series recently that I was streaming. And uh, one of the things the, Greek, they had, the Greeks had this concept of fate. And there were like three sisters, the fates they were called. And they had this string. And one would unwind the string, you know, and, and another would cut it. And the string represented a man's life. And the concept that the Greeks had, it's a poetic concept. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, I don't really think they, they thought that literally. I think it was more a, a description of fate. Fate is fate. There's really not that much you can do about it. Now, having said that, when we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at all the major philosophies of man, the isms. There's fatalism. There's determinism. There's this idea that, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. And then there's fatalism. Everything's just going to be miserable anyway. None of that is entirely true, but there is some truth to this. God knows the end of things. God knows, not the three fates of the of Greek mythology, God knows exactly what's going to happen. So in that sense, it's already determined, but that's determined in the mind of Almighty God, not in our hearts and our minds. So it would be wrong for you to say to your sister or your brother, well, no matter what you do, you're always going to be a failure, thinking that you're one of the fates, right? You can sit there and decide how things are going to be. You don't know that. You have no idea. God knows only because he knows the end from the beginning. Yet he gives us free will. So it's not him determining our fate. It's partially us. When we respond to God and his word and we do the right thing, we're blessed. Now, if that weren't true, then the scripture wouldn't say so. And of course, if you defy God's word, you're not blessed, you're cursed. That is, you suffer for disobedience, you're rewarded for obedience. So what does that tell you? That it's not all predetermined. God knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't interfere with your free will or right to choose. So you can affect the outcome of your life by responding to God and his mercy. Amen? I want to correct that way of thinking because a lot of people have this concept of fate. And when Job's talking here, he's not talking about fate. He's talking about God knowing all things. And it's important to make that clear. Well, then he goes on in verse 7 of chapter 14. Here he's going to use nature. They use a lot of the natural world to explain uh, the things of God in this book. When he uses nature to explain the brief existence of man. Look at this in verses 7 through 12. At least there's hope for a tree. So all the tree huggers out there can be happy, right? At least there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Comparing a tree to a man seems a little ridiculous, right? But the point he's making is that man is not like the, uh, the animal kingdom, but he's also not like the plant kingdom. Plants, it's true. I mean, think about a seed for a minute. 
you could have a seed in a little packet for like forever. I mean, for a long period of time, right? Take that out, put a little water in that thing, it comes right to life. It clearly was not alive and now it is. Explain that. Can you? Because I cannot. I know there's some kind of RNA, there's some kind of truth that God has implanted in that seed that it can, be, it can die and come back to life if it was really ever dead. Something, something is brought to life. And even Jesus used that as an example of the resurrection. If a seed is put in the ground, it'll come to life. So that's how God designed plants. He, he didn't design us that way. When we die, we die. Or did he? You see, the truth of the matter is that a day will come where we will rise, like the seed. We will have truly been dead, and like the seed, we will experience new life in these bodies, bodies that have been changed, immortalized, if you will, turned into incorruptible bodies. That's that's what we call the resurrection. It's what we'll be celebrating on Sunday. So it's kind of interesting how nature sort of points to the fate of mankind, but his contrast here is to make the point that we have a brief existence. Unlike the continuing life of a tree, man disappears completely. Man evaporates like water. He mentions evaporation there from the dry earth. Man evaporates like water from the dry earth. Poetic way of saying we're not like the trees. We go and we don't come back. Now, in verse 13, He begins to cry out to God in this way. He pleads with God to restore his hope in life. He's lost hope, obviously. And now he pleads with God. In verse 13, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? We can answer that question, right, as Christians? Amen? He will. But if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal. That's an interesting word there. Another, uh, another way of thinking of it would be my release. And that's interesting because one day we will be released from death when we die and we're given resurrected bodies. But he said, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. And surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. Job knew something about the hope we have in Christ. Even though he didn't have all the information, this was his hope. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Now, we know how God brought that about. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We talked about this on Sunday. He died and he rose again on the third day. and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And as Job is thinking about this and thinking about his brief existence, his hope isn't in him getting better and continuing to live on the earth. His hope that one day he'll die and be resurrected and renewed and released from death. And God will call him, notice, and he'll answer. And God will long for the creature your hands have made. And notice, you will count my steps but not keep track of my sin. He knows a day will come when he will be made right in the presence of God. And I like this description. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sins. The word for atonement in the Old Testament is to cover. It's what the blood of animals did. It covered sin. The word for atonement in the New Testament is to do away with. It's a very different word. 
but we use the same word, atonement, to describe it. But in the Old Testament, they had the idea of covering sin, sealing it up so that you didn't see it anymore. But isn't that what we experience in Christ? Isn't that really the, the crux of it? That when Christ saves us, it's like he takes our sins and seals them up in a bag. Some of the scripture says he hides it behind his back or he casts it to the bottom of the sea, separates it as far as the east is from the west, remembers them no more. It's beautiful language, and a lot of that truth makes its way into the speeches of Job, especially the things that Job has to say. Well, here he's pleading with God, restore my hope in life, resurrected life, hoping for God's deliverance through death and through an afterlife, hoping for God's justification of his sin. Now, Jesus answered Job's question. Although Jesus was not yet born in the manger at this time, obviously, would be many, many years in the future, Jesus answered Job's question. In fact, I want to turn, I'm just going to read this one scripture for you. Remember what Job just said and what he asked about. What Jesus said here in John's Gospel in chapter 14 is this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So Job asked the question. Jesus answered that through his life and his words. And that's an answer. Now Paul echoes that when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this was Paul's response to that truth. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. So Job had a hope in the resurrection. He did. That's clear. Jesus taught the resurrection. He taught the reward of being in his presence for all eternity. Paul taught the resurrection from a tent to a building. Does that sound like an upgrade? does to me, and it should to you. It surely is an upgrade of our existence, and that is part of the hope we have in Christ as it relates to us being raised from the dead. Now, finally, as we close out our study this evening, Job despairs of his hope ever being restored. So he's going back and forth. You know, he has hope. In his mind, he understands what's going to happen, but in his heart, he's lost hope, and this is more of his uh, emotional state and his mental state than his spiritual state. Have you ever noticed that? That your spirit may know the truth, but your mind and your emotions defy the truth of God? Have you ever experienced that? Like where you know in your heart, oh, he slay me, I will trust in him. I can count on God. God is faithful. He will never leave me or forsake me. And yet, in your mind and in your emotions, the truth is very different. If you're going to be honest with yourself and with others, how you feel and how you think isn't always in accordance with what you believe. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So, in the last few verses here, in verse 18, we read, But as a mountain erodes, in Job 14, 18, as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy men's hope. You overpower him once and for all, and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. 
If his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they are brought low, he does not see it. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. It's kind of sad because Job will have these moments of truth that we've studied, these moments where he truly sees by faith what the truth is, and then he has these moments of mental and emotional turmoil. Now, that doesn't sound like anybody in this room, right? This is human existence. And that's what I love most, I think, about the book of Job. It captures the soul in suffering. It captures the truth of us as human beings. Remember we talked about the two types of wisdom. There's God's wisdom and man's wisdom. I believe we talked about that last week. Let's be honest. This is who we are. A lot of the poetic books in the Bible, the poetry is more about us understanding ourselves than it is understanding God. For example, when we think about the Song of Songs, it's about understanding human love. When we think about understanding man's philosophies, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of the Psalms is very much about man's will. That is, the decisions we make and the consequences of those decisions. And so there's 150 Psalms, and they talk about what it is to be a human being, make decisions, and suffer consequences. It has a lot to do with the will of man. But all that has to do with his soul. That part of us called the psyche in Greek. And Job has to do with it as well. So you have Job, you have Psalms, you have Proverbs, which is man's wisdom. It's really God's wisdom applied in man's life, but it has to do with how we think. All of these books have to do with, with how we think and how we feel. Why would God care how we think and how we feel? Because he loves us. And he's given us his word so that we can understand who we are and who he is. So not all of the Bible is about understanding who God is. Some of it's about understanding who we are in Christ or who we are in him. And that's why in a study of the book of Job is vitally important. And you can't overlook any book of the Bible, including the Song of Songs. You want to go through these books, the poetic books of the Bible, because the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding that you'll glean will help you to not only understand who God is, but who you are in him as well. And that's really a very important truth. So as Job describes here the process of erosion of a mountain, that's describing his mental state. It's, it's quite literally eroding. He's losing it. And he sees suffering and death as the only possible outcome of his circumstances. Now, we know the end of the book, and you know that that's not true. But isn't it something how it feels true in the moment? So many things we swear are true just aren't true in the end. And what's the, what's the difference maker? Our faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we've been challenged. <laughs> Acknowledging who we are and how we think and what it is to be a human being, and seeing how your word testifies to that truth, it also testifies to the truth of who you are. And the revelation of who you are is so much greater than the revelation of who we are, and yet both are necessary. Lord, we need to see that you are holy, 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 and we are not. We need to see that you are worthy and we are unworthy. We need to see that you are perfect and we are fallen. We need to see that you are, in fact, faithful and we are unfaithful. And we also need to see that despite all these things, you love us so. 
such that you gave Jesus to us to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever puts their hope in him is going to have eternal life. Lord, we put our hope in you, despite our circumstances, by faith, knowing that you are to be trusted, you are faithful. And Lord, we look to you, and though you slay us, yet will we hope in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.